I'm not a fan of generalizations most of the time, but I think it might be fair to say that pretty much everyone tries to avoid pain and suffering. I'm about two weeks away from becoming a first-time dad, and I've already bought and watched and taken notes on how to sleep train our kid from birth because I'm scared of the suffering that comes with sleep deprivation. Yeah, and I remember my dad when I was younger, he had plantar fasciitis in his feet, this really debilitating pain. And uh, and recently I found out that my mom has it. So now I'm regularly stretching my feet to try to avoid that pain and suffering in case I'm, you know, like genetically prone to it. So I, I hate suffering at least as much as the next person. And yet in the Christian tradition, It's suffering that is a part of the pattern of how we are transformed. This week's story is about suffering, repressing it, acknowledging it, and then a tick bite that made suffering completely unavoidable. This is Elise's story. She came over to talk with me, and from the outside, in a short interaction, it's easy to think that she's like most any other 30-something. She's got blonde hair, blue eyes, and a sweet but confident voice that will speak up in between what you can tell is very active listening. But spend a few hours with her and you find out that her daily life is quite different from most. And it's altered how she views church and her faith. But her Christianity started out like many people who grew up in a small town, a small town in Texas. Um, being what she called a cultural Christian, going to the town's Methodist church on Sunday, but not much more than that until she got to college. I get to college and I just failed at life with a bunch of things. I didn't fail at school, um, but I just failed at life (laughs) in a lot of ways. And for the first time, I was kind of like, whatever I'm doing right now isn't working for me. Mm. And so um, I, and that's kind of when it hit me like a ton of bricks. Like for me, the gospel, quote unquote, actually became a reality of like, oh, I need a savior. I am broken. I can't do everything on my own because this isn't working for me. Yeah. Yeah. How how um, did hearing the gospel or hearing some that kind of message, um, like what were the good things that you felt from that that were attractive? Yeah, I think for me, it was a combination of freedom, of not having to be perfect, because I really grew up with this mindset of that Western Protestant, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Mm. And that definitely is still woven throughout evangelicalism. But uh, for once, I kind of realized like it was okay to let go. Mm. I didn't have to be this perfect person. In reality, it was the heart of the Christian faith to be broken. So there was that, but also there was kind of this feeling of belonging because A&M, I don't know how much you know about it or not, but it's as close as a Christian college as you can get to being a public school. So still had like a really diverse group of friends with diverse beliefs, but really throughout college, I was really deeply embedded in that evangelical circle, which was the popular thing to do at A&M. Yeah. yeah, you weren't like going against the grain and like, no. I feel 
weird about being Christian no. or what if people find it was the opposite? Exactly. There. Like I did not party until, like I did not drink until I was 21. Like did not have a wild college experience at all because it was like cool to be yeah. Christian, which is so unique to public college experience. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. For me, it was really just like sweet time and really healing from coming to just kind of like a tumultuous high school experience and to college where it was a little bit more stable. But then also I look back on it and knowing that I was kind of surrounding myself with people who kind of thought the same way, I'm kind of look back on that person and I'm like, wow, there's so much I didn't know. Like there was so much I was ignorant to in the world. And so, um, you know, you don't know what you don't know. So like, you can't necessarily do better at that point. Um, but looking back on that, I'm like, oh man, I wish I was like more aware. So in college, during this time where she feels like she's failing at life, she finds this good news that says you need a savior. You don't have to do it all. You don't have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps that somebody else, that Jesus did it for you. And that's what a wonderful message for anyone who comes from a culture or mindset um, where your value or worth or success is all on your shoulders. You know, the, the myth of the self-made man. Yeah, she finds freedom from the idea of having to be perfect. That's, that's beautiful. After college, she moves to Dallas and works in the startup world. And then at 23 years old, she heads up to New York. And in New York... She's confronted, literally, with a different kind of Christian community, quite different from the Southern flavor that she's become used to. For the first time when I went to New York, I was interacting with Christians who were not, A, American, B, were not evangelical or raised in the faith at all. And so I was being challenged on a lot of these, like, southern texas beliefs Mm. that i had like the pull yourself up by your bootstraps the toxic positivity Mm. um just a lot of these things that i'm like really numbing myself to pain um so and then i couldn't feel joy right wasn't vulnerable lots of these things and so for the first time i was confronted head-on by roommates best friends by other christians who were like uh, this isn't like this isn't consistent with the Bible. Like, yeah. Like, walk me through this, you know. And that was like such a good thing. What were they calling out or critiquing? Was it um, beliefs that you were talking about, or was it things that they were just noticing in your lived life? Yeah, um, a little bit of both, but mostly things that they had noticed in my life. So. Um, a very dear friend and mentor of mine, we met for lunch. And the second time we met for lunch, she was like, so Elise, um, I'm going to give you some homework. She's like, there's this woman who just did a TED talk and her name is Brene Brown. And I need you to watch about the power of vulnerability and then come back to me with notes and what you've learned and how you're not living that right now. And I was like, oh, shit and um how did you feel about their them calling you out on this was it how did you receive it 
So I always tell people that my reaction to when they call me out lovingly is, crap, you're right, thank you. Hmm. And I had a moment like that today in therapy. Yeah. <laughs> where I was like, crap, you're right, thank you. <laughs> um, so you know when it's coming from a good place because they want what's genuinely best for you. Um, I appreciate that and welcome that. That's awesome. I love crap. You're right. Thank you. (laughs) So this community in New York is calling out her tendency to repress things and to numb herself to pain. And while she's initially a bit caught off guard by their blunt approach, she welcomes it because she senses their real love and care in their confrontation. Crap. You're right. Thank you. But then something small happens. Something small that turns out to be one of the biggest moments and turning points of Elisa's life. My second year in New York, um, I ended up getting bit by a tick in Central Park Mm. um, on the first day of spring. And it was nice out. And so over the next nine months or so, and I didn't connect it, the dots, until nine months later. And nine months had passed, and I was having just all these crazy symptoms. I was having seizures and passing out on airplanes and uh, couldn't walk in a straight line, couldn't remember words. And it was at a point where doctors had no idea what was going on. The diagnostic testing wasn't working, and I was trying to live in New York and trying to work. And it got to a point where one Christmas, um, you know, the doctors kind of all looked at me and I had seen 40 doctors at this point in New York City, the top in their field. And they were kind of like, well, you've had a good run. Like, we don't really know what to tell you. We're sorry. It was at that point that I had to leave New York to kind of figure out what was going on health wise and leave that church community. And that was kind of a whole other process too because when you're young and you're 20s and you're sick and from both a Christian and just a friend perspective, like people don't wanna hang out with you. People are more interested in going to do something fun to be consumers of the city rather than, um, yeah, rather than friendship. And so I went and did treatment for a few months and then, um, you know, eventually figured out what was going on, went through basically chemo, um, and then came back about six months later and kind of got this new fresh start. And so that's really when my view of faith, because Lyme disease, since they caught it so late, triggered all these other disabilities that are kind of irreversible. And so, um, yeah, that was just kind of something that really started to be the impetus to changing my whole view on faith and just the world. I was curious how this disease led to changing her whole view on faith. But first, I wanted to know more about what life was like during those months leading up to a diagnosis. It's hard to say because I honestly don't remember half of it. Um, I just remember walking around and just feeling like like the worst flu you've ever had and the worst jet lag you've ever had, like a combination of that. And you're still just pushing on and just, you're kind of just fighting to survive. And is it just constant? Yeah. 
uh, like how, practically, how does this affect? It seems like it, obviously it affects everything, but how did it play out for you? Yeah, so relationships were definitely an interesting part. So when I first got sick, I had started dating someone, and um, about three or four months in, you know, I couldn't keep up, and so he was like, "I just think it's best we break up," and I was like. I agree. This is small potatoes compared to, like, if you can't handle this, then you're not the person for me. Do you, after a diagnosis, do you have an action plan? Um, Is there like, oh, now I take these pills and do these things? And how did that go? Yeah. So I did that for about four months. So yeah, I did this really intense um, antibiotic therapy of IVs and all that fun stuff almost every day. Mm. And so... um, and that was just really intense. And so if I wasn't doing that, I was at home sleeping. I had to be on a really intense food regimen. So it was just home sleeping or at the doctor. Like, that's it. Gosh. Do, you, do things start to get better? Yeah. Things start, to get, things start to improve. And so I'm very stubborn. And I was like, I will make it back to New York. Mm. I will make it back. And I really felt like I got this second chance at life. And so I promised myself, because all these amazing people who had lined before me, who kind of helped guide me through that process when my closest friends and family didn't believe me, mm-hmm. um, I promised myself that I wanted to be that. And mm-hmm. so the largest Lyme nonprofit in the world, which is now called Global Lyme Alliance, is based in New York. Okay. And so I was like, I'm going to go back. I'm going to go with a purpose. I'm going to serve on this board. I'm going to get involved and make sure that people don't have to experience what I did. And so I did. And it really was. And so I stayed for another year or two um, and just got to a point where it was hard because you do live with Lyme every day. And it's, it's different in New York, not being able to physically walk like five miles a day Mm. stuff. So you just view life so differently because your whole life changes. And so instead of doing 12 things a day as a New Yorker, um, you have to budget your energy. And there's something called the spoon, the spoon theory, which you, if you haven't heard of, highly recommend you look it up. Okay. Um, but it's basically people with serious illnesses or chronic illness, they have to budget their energy. So taking a shower, making food, those things, which means nothing to a healthy person um you really have to center your whole day around right and so sometimes if you have to go grocery shopping that day that's all the energy you have Mm -hmm. for that day and you can't go to church in person and like that's difficult and for me personally i can't stand up in one spot for more than eight to ten minutes at a time or i'll pass out i got a heart condition from lyme called pots And so one of the biggest things is I can't be in like a super hot environment and I can't stand up for a long time. Mm. Can't walk super long distances. Um, Yeah, I just really have to pace myself. I can't imagine life changing so drastically so quickly. Thankfully for Elise, she was able to arrive at a Lyme diagnosis in only nine months. A diagnosis that on average, takes four to five years to arrive at. She now has to be so conscious of how, you know, how she budgets every bit of energy. She can't stand very long, can't be in hot environments, 
she has to eat quite regularly. Of course, this would affect pretty much the entirety of someone's life, including how to participate in church or a faith community. She said because most churches aren't used to people with disabilities, they don't feel like a welcoming environment. And there's lots of little things that can start to add up. Like from the time that you walk into a church and you're asked to sit in the middle of the road to make room for others, but you might need an aisle seat because you get sick often. Or um, or you're sitting down when from the stage they're asking you to stand up for songs or for readings, and that can often invite suspicious looks from other people. Or being asked to serve or participate in church functions that she couldn't physically do. And while those may seem like little things, she said they can add up to both internally feeling like you don't belong and externally getting comments and signals that you don't belong here. There was one time where a community group, um, it was just a few of us doing a get together and I had helped organize it and I can't be out in heat in here in Austin and um, it was like 100 degrees that day and one girl decided she wanted to sit outside and I was like, hey, I would love to join but... um, but I, I can't sit outside because otherwise I'll pass out. But, you know, I would love to spend time with everyone if it's inside. And so they decided to all go sit outside. And then a couple people made comments to me about how I skipped out on this thing and that I didn't care about them. Mm-hmm. Just things like that that, you know, make a big difference. Yeah. That made it difficult in that sense. And it kind of opened my eyes to how marginalized people feel in both churches and just any other setting. And I kind of hate to say it, but in reality, it was worse in the Christian community because there are these unspoken expectations of serving in the church physically in some ways. And I would try and serve in other ways and it just didn't pan out because people want you to be teaching Sunday school or being an usher and doing these kinds of things that you're not quote unquote truly involved unless you're doing that. And being in community where, you know, it's just odds are that one person's not gonna understand and they're gonna push back because they don't understand. And so at first I felt kind of like, especially being in my early 20s when I first was sick, I was like, you know, I'm one of the first people that a lot of these people know that. I don't look sick, but I am, and to have grace, like what a cool opportunity for me to teach and like share just really, really clear boundaries that I have and what I can and can't do, and then people can make their own decisions. But, you know, now that I'm in my 30s and people have had a chance to evolve and grow and they're still not that way, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's just kind of, yeah, it's kind of worse in Christian communities these Mm -hmm. days. I don't know, I just felt like there was this savior complex in the church. Like we are, especially white evangelical churches, like we are blessed to bless others. And then when you become a part, when that's no longer your identity and you're part of this marginalized group, you're like, what do I do now? Mm. Where, where do I fit in this, right? And so at the same time, you're seeing, you know, just a lot of social and political things happening and just people given the opportunity to choose kindness and empathy, right? And you see people who actively choose not to or actively just ignore that while you're evolving and you kind of, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) 
I had to face myself and ask this question, okay, like even though I'm disabled, I still have lots of privilege as a, as a white woman. Like I still have lots of privilege. And so it's like, do I be the change that I want to see and have these conversations with people while a part of these organizations? Mm -hmm. Or am I complicit by being a part of this organization mm -hmm. that does not stand up because ultimately that kind of represents who I am? And in 2017 or so, I just actively decided to separate myself from that. Um, when you say from that, do you mean from the church? Um, churches that did not believe in those things. Okay. Yeah. Elise's new abilities or disabilities, um, they open up her eyes to how it might feel for someone who doesn't fit into the normal mold of a community. What is expected of you and what is the role that you're supposed to play? How are you supposed to show up? What is the value that you bring? Where does your value to the community come from? You know, she used to fit into the community mold, but now she sees it from a different perspective. One that opens up her awareness and compassion to other marginalized people groups who also find that they don't fit the mold. And after trying to help others become aware of those with different experiences, she finally decides she needs to step out of the church. And it's been a great decision for her and her husband, even though it's meant, you know, maybe sometimes getting even more judgment from those communities. And so just allowing ourselves to take a break has been the healthiest thing mm. for, for us and for me, just to be able to do something not out of obligation or frankly, because my other friends will look down on me if I don't versus doing something because I actually believe it and want to be a part of it. What helped you get to that place? Mm, setting boundaries and therapy. Mm. Because, we are <laughs> because we are taught for the longest time, and I would have been this person too, when someone goes astray, it is your job to bring them back. Yeah. And so I had all these people who are like grilling me on what I believe and... You know, I had several Christian friends unfollow me when I spoke about racism. And you're just kind of like, you know, at this point, you don't owe anyone an explanation. Um, I will always do my best to maintain relationships as long as they're healthy. But I just realized I don't have to explain myself to someone who's committed to misunderstanding me. Oh, wow. You know, and like I can give them, I can come in and say very clearly, hey, like my, my goal in this conversation is not to get to a certain point, but mutual understanding. Mm. That's my goal, right? And then when you have people and friends in the church who are more interested in you getting to a certain point, yeah. and uh, that's when you know it's not necessarily healthy. I love that definition of healthy because like you're saying, there's another view of healthy means arriving at a specific point yeah. and anything that's not that specific point is unhealthy and needs to be brought back into the flock. Um, yeah, that's so different than healthy being seen as arriving at a place of understanding each other. Yeah. Um, 
And I don't even know how to do that if somebody views it differently. Um, exactly. It's, it's like we're taught in marriage, if either one of you is trying to win an argument or a conversation, then you both lose. Yeah. Right? We're taught that. And so, and that's the way I view those conversations, right? Is maintaining that relationship and understanding the other person. And so, as soon as someone comes in with an agenda, then, yeah, there's nothing I can do about that. Yeah. I really hate how often I see this in churches. And honestly, I hate how often I see it in myself. And I think much of the desire to convert or fix the other comes from an inability to hold suffering and pain in myself. Richard Rohr, a Franciscan priest, talks about the two common tactics that we often use to avoid holding the pain of life, fight or flight. We can choose to fight pain, which is the way of the zealot, often the way of the cultural liberal, That part of us wants to change and fix and control and reform other people and events out there. We allow the zealot in us to righteously attack them or hate them. We want to go and transform the pain in the world out there because we can't hold it long enough for it to transform me in here. Then there's the other response to pain and suffering, flight. This is the way of the Pharisee, often the way of the cultural conservative. This is the part of us that denies the pain altogether. There will be no uncertainty or ambiguity or problems. We often divide up the world into black and white. There's good guys and there's bad guys. And it's all figured out in my head. And I'm sitting on my pedestal of purity and false innocence. And it's a comfortable place to be until something in our lives finally forces us to face some sort of pain. He then says, there's a third way beyond fight or flight, and yet in a certain sense includes both. It's fighting in a new way from within and fleeing from the quick egocentric response. And our small false identity or self is too small to hold this way, but our true self can live in this third way. I feel like I can hear this third way emerging from Elisa's story. She went from what she called the toxic positivity of her first churches that denied and repressed pain, then to the desire to change and fix others out there, to the ability to hold the pain and suffering until it changed her. And it changed her into a more open, compassionate, and understanding person. Yeah. Yeah, the very thing we spend so much time trying to minimize and avoid is the thing that has the power to transform us. Yeah. And let me say that creating boxes and categories about how we respond to pain, fight or flight, or a third way... That feels a little bit trite to me right now. Um, I, I I say it because it's it's helpful for my brain, um, but there's a deeper part of me that hesitates to draw tidy conclusions 
and to try to wrap a bow on a story like Elise's. Partly because I know I still need to be more transformed by the pain and suffering of life. And partly because I can't imagine what it would be like for life to drastically change from a little tick bite on a spring walk in Central Park. And partly because I don't know much of not fitting into the identities and abilities that are privileged in my culture. What was that um, experience like? Um, Not so much at a kind of a physical line level, but more of an awareness level of what it's like to not be in a place of privilege, in a um, place where you don't have to think about those things. But what was that experience of becoming aware of that like? Yeah, well, it's hard at first, right? When you lose that, but I'm so grateful for it. So grateful. Um, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to be more empathetic and a kinder person and to be able to have these conversations with people who don't have that perspective. Um, So, yeah. I want to end with a quote from Richard Rohr, the Franciscan that I mentioned earlier. He writes about pain and suffering, and he says, Allowing our always unjust wounds to, in fact, become sacred wounds is the unique Christian name for salvation. We always learn our mystery at the price of our innocence. Now, if we can trust the pain and not get rid of it until we have learned its lessons, The suffering can be seen as a part of the great pattern of how God is transforming all things. There's no other way we learn how to let go and discover compassion, it seems. Thank you to Elise for sharing your story and for letting your story open you up to discover more compassion and love. I hope that I can learn to do the same.